Decker is a private eye, an honest one, but when Al Capone hires him to investigate a new joint called Docs, he knows this is one job he can't refuse. And just why are the Doctor and Ace selling illegal booze in a town full of murderous gangsters? Meanwhile, Bernice has been abandoned on a vampire-infested planet outside normal space. There she meets a mysterious stranger called Romana Dvaratralunda and discovers an ancient and malevolent power linking 1929 Chicago with a lair of immortal evil. Welcome back to the Secret Library of St. John the Beheaded, with me, my cat Wolsey, and my little artificially intelligent friend, Agent Orange. Hello. Yes, hello Agent Orange. This month, we're looking at the Terence Sticks Virgin New Adventure novel, Blood Harvest. Before my conversation with Dylan Reese from Too Hot for TV, here's James with the book's Prelude, originally published in Doctor Who magazine. Chicago, 5th December, 1933. A clear, cold winter's night with fine snow drifting upon the air. A little group of men stood outside a modest three-storey house in a quiet residential street just off Dearborn Avenue. Lights glowed behind curtained windows and a soft throb of jazz came from inside. The men were staring at the open door, or rather at the space just above, Suddenly there was a crackle of electricity and a discreet sign lit up. In neat neon red letters it read, Doc's Place. A ragged cheer went up from the little crowd. Three men stood at the front of the group. One was enormous, another just very big. The third man, older than the others, was slim and silver-haired. The biggest of the three men, who looked like a gorilla in evening dress, said, Legit at last, and it only took a few years. Doc was right, hey Luigi? Doc was right about most things, Happy, said the silver-haired man. He sure was, said the third man quietly. Unlike the first two, immaculate in their tuxedos, he wore a rumpled blue suit and an ancient trench coat. A battered fedora was jammed on the back of his head. The silver-haired man stared at the sign for a moment and then raised his voice. Very well, gentlemen, your first drink is on the house. That's tonight only, roared the gorilla-like man. Tomorrow you mugs gotta pay up as usual. There was another cheer, and most of the crowd rushed into the house. The three men lingered for a moment, looking at the sign. The big man said, It's a nice sign, Luigi. Real class. Duck would have liked it. The silver-haired man looked pleased. Thank you, Mr. Decker. I'd better get inside, help my barman hand out those free drinks. He hurried into the house, and the other two followed. In the luxurious hallway, the massive Happy went to close the door. Decker said, Hey, leave it open, Happy. Come one, come all. Hey, that's right, Happy Harrigan shook his head wonderingly. He pointed to the little shutter, set head high in the door. No more looking at the suckers through the shutter. Nobody giving the password. I'm sick. I want to see the dark. It don't seem natural. Decker said, 
You'll get used to it, Happy. Watch the door all the same. No drunks, no troublemakers. Sure thing, Mr. Decker. Decker went down the hallway and into the bar. He went up to the bar, sat on his usual stool and lit a cigarette. Luigi put a bourbon in front of him, and he sat drinking and smoking and staring into space, remembering. Angry voices brought him out of his reverie. The place was crowded by now, with people fighting for seats and places at the bar. The air was thick with smoke, and the noise of excited voices almost drowned out the jazz combo. Above all the racket, he heard a customer yelling at a frightened waiter, I tell you, I'm going to sit right there. It's empty, ain't it? He was pointing at an empty alcove to the right of the bar. The waiter said, Excuse me, sir, you don't understand. The customer, a burly, flashily dressed, blue-chinned character, shoved him aside. Decker sighed, slid off his stool and moved across to the front of the alcove, barring the customer's way. The seat in the alcove's reserved. Yeah, says who? Decker studied the man for a moment before replying. The man wore a cheap tux with a bulge under the left arm. A stranger. Out of town hood, thought Decker. Detroit or Cleveland, maybe even New York. A lot of new talent was moving into Chicago now the big fellow had been put away at last. Says me, said Decker wearily, answering the question. And who the hell are you? The name's Decker. Tom Decker. The hood shifted uneasily under Decker's hard stare. He was deciding whether or not to push it. To help him make up his mind, Decker unbuttoned his jacket, letting the guy see the butt of the Colt 45 automatic under his arm. The handle of the Colt was worn and shiny. It had seen a lot of use. The man licked his lips. You a cop? Private. And the seat still reserved. Decker saw the anger flare in the man's eyes, saw his right hand twitch and realised he was going to go for it. He tensed, and a huge man with a round, red face stepped between them. And just what might be going on here? Decker said, Evening, Captain Riley. Nice to see you. I was just explaining to our friend that the alcove's reserved. Captain Dennis Riley of Chicago's finest said irritably, To be sure it is. Everyone knows that. He glared at the hood. That seat's reserved for Duck, the guy who started this place. A personal friend of mine. So beat it. He jabbed a finger as thick as a banana in the stranger's chest. The hood staggered back and disappeared into the crowd. Riley said, I suppose we ought to be patient with the poor fella. He's new in town. He'll learn. If he lives. Riley said, Ah, sure, there's always that. Is Dark back in Chicago? Not that I know of, he's... travelling. Great guy, that Dark. Those were the days, hey, Decker? Sure were. Riley had once tried to kill Doc and Decker back in those good old days, but he obviously didn't bear any malice. Riley sighed. And now prohibition's over and booze is legal again. How's a poor corrupt police captain to make a living? He nodded and moved away, and Decker went back to his stool. Luigi put another bourbon in front of him. I was getting ready to duck. We're never going to make a profit if you keep shooting the customers, Mr. Decker. It's lucky Riley broke it up. He asked if Doc was back. Decker lit another cigarette and sipped his drink. Remembering a time not so long ago when booze was illegal, Capone ruled Chicago and the sound of bombs and tommy guns was as routine as the roar of traffic. He remembered a small, grey-eyed man known as Doc, 
and the deadly dark-haired girl they called the Lady in Black. Luigi was polishing a glass. You think he'll ever come back to Chicago, Mr. Decker? Him and Miss Ace? Beats me, Luigi. Tom Decker glanced at the empty alcove and raised his glass. But if he does, his usual chair will be waiting for him. We attribute the success to mankind. You're joining us. So I've written an introduction for you. Do you want to hear it? Yes, absolutely. This is very exciting. Okay. This month's guest needs no introduction. Hi, Dylan. (laughs) Hello, hello. That's fantastic. (laughs) You've really encompassed my entire personality and character right there. I suppose the stuff I left out is probably an error. I mean, things like (laughs) Too Hot for TV, for instance. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, we all know that every podcast just has the same bunch of listeners anyway. So if if you don't listen to Too Hot for TV, then you're probably not a real Doctor Who fan anyway. No, no, that's very true. Um, and certainly if you haven't guessed it on it, like I have. Indeed, um, indeed. But we're, uh, we're, we're going to get everybody eventually. Good, well, I hope so. <laughs> so what's what's coming up in the next couple of months on your on your pod? Well, actually, when is this going to go out? Oh, Christ, I don't know. Um, what, <laughs> so it's October now, and this is... Uh, it's going to be like December, January, maybe? December, January, right. Okay, well... Oh, okay. You will have just had uh, Mark Cockrum, uh, who you may know. I'm aware of the man. If you're you're aware of the guy. He's going to be doing our Halloween episode, which I was editing only last night. Uh, I mean, it'll be a Halloween episode if we can get it out in time for Halloween. Otherwise, it'll just be November. Um, But we're looking at two spooky stories. Uh, Then myself and another Mark, Mark Donaldson from On The Time Lash, are looking at... Uh, the Dark Dimensions, the script for the unmade 30th anniversary story, because we're gluttons for punishment. Uh, I know, I know. Excitement. Yeah, it's very oh. exciting. And then I've got Luke from Lost on Gallifrey. We're looking at a Torchwood audio and a Jago and Lightfoot audio. And um, there's some other stuff coming up as well, but those are sort of the, mo- the more immediate things, I guess. That's good stuff. That's all very niche um which is you know, the, pot, <laughs> the pot calling the kettle black given yeah. the remit of my show <laughs> <laughs> well you know but, everyone I, some of us are into this niche stuff and you know it, it's good I, you can find a home for it on the internet i think you need to have a niche i think yeah. people are more interested in the niche stuff i mean if it was just i'm talking about the latest episode of jody who People would be like, well, I saw that. I've got my own opinion. I don't need to listen to you. Do you know, it's funny you say that. I was um, I was listening, going through, I subscribe to lots of Doctor Who podcasts. Some of them I listen to regularly. Some of them are popping in and out. And recently, I was just trying to find something to listen to that wasn't a preview of Power of the Doctor, of people yeah. going, well, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to get in. I hope he sticks the landing. There's a lot to get. There's only so many times you can hear that before you want to gnaw your own arm off. But uh... I know. <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite an interesting kind of... Um, expectation that some people have that suddenly the whole era is going to make sense after <laughs> 90 final minutes of Jody. 80, 87 minutes, which, 87. which everybody's pissed off about. Where's those have we lost, three minutes? Have we lost three? Is that another government cut? It's is not- that austerity too? <laughs> that, trust. That's exactly what it is. Or it's just the fact that they put little adverts at the beginning and the end. So anyway, we are here to talk about <laughs> the Virgin New Adventure, Blood Harvest. Yes. Um, 
Let's start by maybe asking you about your relationship with the Virgin New Adventures, because I think yours is a more interesting story than mine is. It's it's a, it's a slightly convoluted one in that I was probably... I mean, they started in, what, 91, 92, something like that? 91. 91. So I was about eight years old, so I was not the target audience for these books. Um, I like where you've done that, target <laughs> target audience. Oh. Exactly. That was on purpose, wasn't it? Zinger! <laughs> um, so I used to see them on the shelves, and they had very pretty covers, and sometimes I'd buy them. I say I'd buy them. I'd ask somebody to buy me one, and I'd look at the cover and then not read it because I couldn't read it. The words were too complicated, which is funny now going back to them, obviously, and being like, to think that this was a challenging read at one point. (laughs) But um, And then I probably read a few of them in my teenage years, but again, I wasn't the strongest... It wasn't that I wasn't a strong reader, I was just really slow. So I was was after a book with 90 pages rather than 280 or something like that. Um, So it was probably in my late teens and early 20s when I first when I went to university so I'd pick up secondhand copies and when I got my first job and had a minuscule disposable income and I remember I was working I lived in far far north London in Finchley which people probably won't know and I worked down in a place called Turnham Green so it was two trains and it took about an hour and 20 minutes there and back so I just used to sit there reading new adventures so it was i came to them the the series was probably back if i'm honest when i was when i first when i came to them properly but uh that's and i don't i haven't read them all but i've certainly read all the big titles um less familiar with the eighth doctor books but i read quite a few of them uh, those at the time because i was a bit old enough to uh, by that point i was late teens or mid-teens to late teens and read a few of the big hitters right. uh, and i've definitely read the most of that i've read is probably the missing adventures um but as i discovered with reading this and indeed your podcast because um as listeners may know you ask for feedback every month and i go oh i'll do that that'll be a good idea and i can never remember a fucking thing about <laughs> any of them <laughs> I've, i must have read say there's between the Eighth Doctor and the New Adventures, there's 120 books. I must Something have like read 60 to 70 percent of that, and I can't remember a fucking thing about any of them. Well, in in some cases, that that might be a good thing, <laughs> as, as as we may come to. But it is interesting, and a, a lot of people are, you know, exactly like you. They're like, "Oh, exciting! Yeah, I love those books. Yeah." And then you ask them to comment on a specific one, and they sort of go, "Well, it was thirty years ago." <laughs> and you know, here we are. I only finished rereading Blood Harvest yesterday morning, and right. I'm a bit sketchy on some of the details. <laughs> but I think what what unites a lot of the books is that. You know, they are, some of them, 30 years old, but they're between sort of 20 and 30 years old for the sake of argument. And a lot of them have aged really well. And you go back to them now and you've got a really, you know, the the prose is brilliant. The story is kind of robust and strong and stands on its own two feet and is um, just a a really exciting, innovative Doctor Who adventure. Um, And then there are books like Blood Harvest. (laughs) Well, you say that, but uh, I, I mean, there are parts of it I didn't enjoy, but on the whole, I had a great time re- rereading this. I mean, so there's there's enjoyable, but <laughs> with little literary merit. 
and then there's a good book, and I think this might fall slightly into that first category rather than. I think it has trouble. Terence Dix writes very good, very solid, dependable Doctor Who that I think is for a children's audience. The New Adventures were aimed at an older audience. And I think he has trouble fitting into that. And I think the more jarring elements of the book are are possibly those those elements that he's trying to chuck in to be more edgy. I think you're probably right there. And it's a, I suppose it's a question of why, given where the range was going at you know, um, this was 94 this came out. Yeah. And and, and it, there have been five or six months of really brilliant new adventure novels. And then this one comes out. And I suppose it's a question of why did the editors think that Terence Dix was someone they needed at this point? Maybe it was to, mm. you know, revive the sales. And they thought a big name like Terence Dix would help them out. Or, or they just thought he was going to deliver something that, he did not deliver. Well, I mean, I wonder whether there's a case of there are certain fans that just didn't take to the new adventures and it was to try and drag them in because it's like, I do think it's a cracking adventure story with kind of danger and excitement and it's exactly how I like my 70s Doctor Who. Mm. This is sort of 90s... Uh, it's the 90s bits again that are peppered in that perhaps don't work so well. Had I been 10 years old and this been 90 pages, I would have thought it was the greatest Doctor Who story of all time. <laughs> well, let's drill into it. So, I mean, my... Um, I suppose my biggest problem is why the hell are we having to read a sequel to State of Decay? <laughs> well, it's it's barely... a see, it's It's basically State of Decay again chopped up with some gangster bits thrown in between. Restate of Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, the weird thing is, I know I've read this before, and whether I was 14 or 19 or 25, I don't know, but I had completely forgotten about all the Al Capone stuff. I just right. remembered that it was a sequel to State of Decay that took place in E-Space on... It's a nameless planet, right? I don't think we ever get yeah. the name of the planet. No, we, no. Um, because why would you name your planet that you live on? Um but planet (laughs) home i think at one point it is even called the vampire planet in there or something like that but anyway which if you weren't a vampire and you were living on the vampire (laughs) planet you'd be thinking fuck it yeah don't tarnish us all with that brush there's bloody loads of us there's only a couple of vampires yeah there's there's also some surfs (laughs) and uh and a horsey (laughs) exactly so i mean it's it is an odd mix. So coming back to it, and it's starting as uh, a noir detective story mm. told in the first person, which mm. I do think is a, a brilliant way to start a book. I, and I kind, absolutely, I kind of wish it was all just set in that Chicago bit. It, yeah. It, but you know, it starts off and Decker, the who's the detective character, it's all told from his point of view, and it's that classic, you know. You know, it was a cult. It was a dark night, and I lit a cigarette and poured myself a bourbon and stuff like that. Like and I there hit- was a dame, and there was, <laughs> there was a couple of hoodlums came in, and they were packing heat. And, uh. Exactly, and it that. was great. But and he, it lasts for about two and a half chapters until yeah. he needs to do a scene that Decker isn't in. <laughs> so he just abandons the whole first. Person. Exactly, because it, I mean, in a if this was a modern episode of Doctor Who. That would be the pre-title sting. It would be done in black and white. 
and then you'd jump to the titles and then it would just be normal Doctor Who. But it's he doesn't com- he commits too far to it, but doesn't commit <laughs> enough. It's like just do your prologue like that. Just do your prologue. But no. Yeah. It's yeah, uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean the the Al Capone stuff and obviously um we've been spoiled in the last twenty years. We've not only had the Sopranos, but we've had Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. So rereading it now, the gangster uh, genre is something I'm not sure I said that right. I meant to say gangster genre, but I might have come out with any old trick. The gangster genre is something that I'm certainly a lot more familiar with, and, and most of the tropes he seemed to sort of hit bang on. And as you say, the Al Capone stuff was, you know, aimed at children, but it was great stuff. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, it's a bit of a weird one, because... the. It, the Al Capone stuff is sort of written childish, but then there's these bloodbaths that happen throughout. But then as a kid, that's what you like. It's Tommy guns, and then later on it's vampires cutting people's heads off and things like that. So it is it is an odd mix, but like, again, if I was a kid, I would love it. Because when you're a kid, you almost want Doctor Who, Doctor Who to be more violent and more gory yeah, than it ever is. Yeah, you yeah. don't appreciate kind of the nuances of the silly little show of all the things it's and all the different directions it pulls in. Um, but yeah, I do like the Al Capone stuff. I'm a little unsure how I feel about the Doctor being best mates with Al Capone. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of moments in it where, you know, the, the casual... He, he, he's like, oh, well, reluctantly, I'll take a gun to this meeting or yeah. I'll always have a cigarette on the go next to me. Yeah, There's a number of um, Doctorish moments just in that part of the story that really don't work but again they would have probably worked with someone like the third doctor who you can imagine chain smoking and packing heat at the slightest provocation yeah and who was also best mates with chairman Mao, so it was fine yeah yeah yeah. who who else who knows who else i always think (laughs) of the third doctor like there was an epi- that episode of Red Dwarf where they meet their future selves and they're like, "Oh yeah, we're uh, we're time travelers and we're best mates with the Hitlers." I just I, <laughs> I think that's that's the third Doctor all over. Him and him and uh, Robert Mugabe probably holiday together yeah. or something. I can just see them both in like slightly too short swimming trunks <laughs> by the pool, yeah, smoking cigars. Exactly. Um, but enough about my sexual <laughs> fantasies. What? So within the the Al Capone section, I guess it's it's probably quite a good good idea to kind of go through it in this kind of way. Um, I mean, so the characterization. Yeah. What What did you make of the characterization of, say, Ace, for example? I mean, by this point, Ace is barely recognisable. I think as the character that we left in survival. Now, that's yeah. not to say that characters can't move on, but I know the New Adventures writer said at some point they just had trouble kind of figuring out what to do with her, which is why they're far more interested in Benny. Mm. Um, but she is... She's she's a bit two-dimensional. You're always drawn to Benny more. Like, she's just used as the Doctor's muscle, essentially. You know, she carries a gun, she gets into... And the Doctor doesn't even seem that bothered anymore about her not resorting to violence like there's a few things like uh, i think he says just use it turn it to stun or something when they're on gallifrey but she's just there to blow things up and to kick the shit out of people and then fuck whoever the man of the week is for her to have sex with which this time around was decker and exactly. i probably 
It's it's quite subtly done, so I might not even have noticed it when I was fifteen <laughs> reading this. But I'm but I, they, they did right they, yeah. at the end. They yeah. definitely did. It, it, yeah. She even says the doctor says we can stay for one night, and then they bugger off somewhere. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um. So you know, and then a vampire escapes later on, and she's come. She's wearing some sexy negligee, according to the description. <laughs> Like there's a lot of points in it where I feel like Terence Dix is having tremendous fun writing it, because he does like writing these adventure stories for big kids, and I include myself as a big kid, and probably <laughs> Terence Dix too, because I can just imagine him cackling when writing some of this stuff to himself about, especially like all the blood baths and all the little little jokes, like um, when the Doctor's on Gallifrey and he goes, uh, they go the ni- the mind probe, and he goes, yeah. the Doctor goes. No, and then like exhaustedly or something. Not, not, not the mind prayer. No, not the mind. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's even that he takes a pot shot of himself uh, at himself when with someone goes yeah and it was like a wheezing and groaning sound and he goes well who who would say something like that what a silly description. <laughs> yeah, there was good stuff, but also. Um... I think where he was overreaching himself was with some of the some of the dialogue. Everyone's either a stupid bitch or a classic dumb blonde yeah. or a dumb something else that I'm not yeah. even going to go near. Which, again, at the time it was written and at the age Terence Dix was when he wrote it, you know, different generation, different politics. But that book could get cancelled now, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, there's, the, like, the, uh, the most contentious thing is, obviously, there is uh, an N-bomb in there, which... Oh, yeah. I just I just don't need that in a Doctor Who book again. Like, no. Um, Rosa skirted a, a good line and also, also was written by a person of colour uh, of how do, you, how do you do... How do you show a racist period of time to a tea-time audience... And, you know, did it well. This is just like, I understand, but the, it, it, there's no call for it to be there. You can show somebody downtrodden, you know, it's a it's a working old black man, essentially, who works for one yeah. of the mobsters. And it's just like, there is no need to put that word in there. And actually, shame on the editors for letting it pass through. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, if it, if it was a, a genuine, serious literary attempt at reviving that genre, written for adults, yeah. then... Then maybe there's an argument, but it's a basically it's a kids' book, isn't yeah. It? So no. All right. So uh, the the uh, the Al Capone stuff. Do you want to move on, or is there anything else about that we can talk about? I mean, the, the, yeah, the Al Capone stuff. I like the setting. I do like the Doctor running a saloon and yep. brewing the best alcohol around, because of course the Doctor would brew the the, the best alcohol. Well, so this is germane to my interests where i live you've got a lot of micro brewing yeah um i can just see him with a you know 12 <laughs> 16 huge stills in the in the bathroom in the tardis yeah he's probably got a couple of um hoppy citrusy ipas <laughs> on the go he's probably got a, a reliable porter 100 percent um and maybe a, a, a peanut butter um <laughs> stout i believe it is i'm just looking at the saints row menu the yeah peanut butter stout launches tonight so i'll be i'll be out in a minute um, isn't it 11 a.m 
I said in a minute, you know. <laughs> they open at 12. Oh, no, it's a weekday. They don't. It's nearly five open. o'clock here, though, so you're fine. Oh, um, if I set off now. So, so I could, I can, I love the doctor kind of ingratiating himself in that world and also becoming quite pally with the mobsters and the police and just kind of manipulating them all. To, he manipulates them into a truce. He manipulates them to leave him alone so nobody, um, you know, pulls a racket on his place. And, you know, he's constantly nursing a whiskey, even though he doesn't always drink it. And he even says he'll become... He's worried that if he stays there too long, he'll become the, the first alcoholic Time Lord, which I thought yeah. was uh, an interesting one, especially considering the fourth Doctor looked like he liked to put away a few. Well, well, yes. Oh. <laughs> it makes me think there's a big finished box set waiting to happen there about the first alcoholic Time Lord. <laughs> He keeps getting so pissed, he regenerates. <laughs> Every morning he wakes up and he's like, oh, a new face again. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder why, I can't remember anything. It must be post-regeneration amnesia. No, Doctor, you had a fucking skinful and you whazzed all over the console. <laughs> it wasn't me, it was the other guy. Oh, it was, it was not the Doctor, not a different time, Lord. Yeah, the drinker. Yeah. Um. So I think I think Doctor Who works well in that setting, and I would like to see more of it. I think that's the most successful part of the story for me. Uh, I mean, it kind of has no call to be there, because everything that happens there also happens on the vampire planet. So yes, you d- it's just a way for him to separate everybody. But to me, that's the better written stuff and the more exciting stuff, I think. I think you're right. Also, I would I would suggest that maybe he couldn't sustain just the Vampire Planet for 250 pages. No, I mean, I wonder whether there was a, the original pitch even had, like, it was one or the other, and he just went, "This isn't going to work." What did? What else have I written that I could? But oh, state of decay. Yeah. <laughs> What's in this drawer? Yeah. Oh yes, I wrote that. I'll do that. I wrote that. And you know, it's not the only story to. <laughs> It's it's not the only story to fit for this to feel like a sequel to, but I'm sure we'll come to that later. We'll come to the five doctors in a minute, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, I I think for me, um, it was the most egregiously terrible part of the book was this sequel, State of Decay, because with the five doctors, this book's coming out, give or take, you know, ten years after the five doctors, maybe. Maybe there's something interesting to say there isn't, but we'll come to that in a minute. <laughs> but State of Decay was, I would argue, a fairly inconsequential story. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I do... I don't feel like it was call, calling out for a sequel. I mean, I feel like there is more to be done in Doctor Who with vampires. Uh, and I know Vampire Science, I remember being a particularly good book. And I know the mm-hmm. TV series seems to sort of skirt away from it, which is probably due, due to the time it goes out and blood, essentially. Otherwise, mm. do, even when we had, uh, is it Smith and Jones with the vampire? She has a little straw that she uh, sucks pe- blood out of people's necks. So you never see more than like a dash of it. Um, and like, there is some interesting stuff. Like, when. The three, what are they called? The three who rule? Um, Zargo, Zargo... Camilla and Orkorn. That's it. Um, When they're brought back, you're like, oh, for fuck's sake. But is it any sillier than any Hammer Horror film which brings back Christopher Lee's Dracula time and time again? No, it's probably not. But... I did like that there was, at the end, there's this sort of twist that they they were brought back by someone else, 
but the, the regeneration, the transformation wasn't complete, so they're basically just husks of themselves that crave blood and their brains didn't form properly. So I kind of let it off for that. That, again, that is fair enough. I think I think you're right. Um, it, was, it, was, it was like a, a you know... It, what he'd written set on the vampire planet would have turned State of Decay from, say, a four-parter into a six-parter. Yeah. And maybe, yeah, there's no harm done. Yeah. Um, the other thing, I suppose, which kind of informs where this book is coming from and probably explains why it was commissioned is that obviously it was the companion volume to Goth Opera. Yeah. Which I've not read. But I know that when they were going to launch the missing adventures, they wanted to start with a tie-in to the new yeah. adventures, so that um, so that there'd be readers moving across. Have you read Goth Opera? So yeah. this this is something I'm pretty sure I have, but I couldn't tell you what happened. And even <laughs> at the end of this, where it sets up a vampire escaping, and you're like, oh. Um, what story is that? I'm like, that must be goth opera because the doctor goes, I've already dealt with this escape vampire. But I couldn't, again, my memories of the missing adventures is I remember one that involved the the fourth doctor and some computers, which seemed wild at the time. <laughs> uh, you know, it was because it, it was set in the 90s. And I remember oh, wow. the shadow of Weng Chiang and uh, romance of crime. Like, But really, I don't... Like, I, again, it's just... I'm sure, like, I awake in sweats in the middle of the night and go, oh, I remember this moment, but it's just, you know, and, you know oh, re- return to the planet of the Zabi or whatever it was. But it... So I, I've definitely read loads of them, and I, Goth Opera was definitely one that was high on my list to read because, yeah. and, but fuck knows what happened in it. It's very inconvenient, the big finish cancelled their adaptations range because it's really easy to... Um, just remember those stories by listening to a two-hour adaptation. But also, I understand why they didn't go on, because they weren't very good. Um, well, uh, do you mean in terms of the big finished production wasn't very good? Yeah, I just, I just don't think they... I just, it's, adaptation is a lot harder than people think and give it credit for. And I don't think they ever successfully nailed... Like Nightshade, for instance, is a book that I remember probably the most. And I just yeah. remember b- being bored by the audio. And the same with um, Damaged Goods, Russell C. Davis's one, which I know needed a bit of tweaking due to its adult content. But yeah. I was just a bit like, oh, this is just a bit of a hammy version. I mean, so I, at the time Big Finish started doing it, I was prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt and listen to a couple. Mm. But it's trying to reverse engineer something back into the format of basically the soundtrack of a TV show. Yeah. When it was written to be far more than that, and it it just yeah, it didn't capture enough of the new adventures, mm. um, and it didn't really fit in with what what you know all the myriad of other products <laughs> they were offering. So it, yeah, I I kind of checked out. I think I listened to two or three. Yeah, um, and it, I was ultimately unimpressed. Well, I mean, isn't that the remit of a Doctor Who fan to be ultimately unimpressed? <laughs> um, <laughs> so. Yeah, all right. So 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 the final chunk of the book and basically the last 50 pages we go back to Gallifrey. Yeah, and that's for me I'm having a good time all the way through this book. There are bits I dislike, but they're few and far between. But it's when we land on Gallifrey, I'm just bored shitless instantly because 
it becomes a bit of a rehash of the five doctors. We've got yeah. this the council of three who have been nip- manipulating things uh, all the time, and who have a little uh, they have a little catchphrase, don't they? I wrote it down somewhere. Oh God, now what is it? Death to the Doctor. <laughs> Barusa, Barusa must li- no. Barusa lives. Uh, Rassilon must die. Uh, Death to the Doctor, Barusa lives, Rassilon must die. Yeah, there you go. Now imagine you're trying to have a serious work meeting <laughs> and someone insists on you all having to say that kind of thing at the end of every single meeting. It's nonsense. I, I do like the Doctor scouts on a moment, though, with a surgeon there and about it, where he goes, word of a Pridonian, word of a Pridonian. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pinky promise. You can't break a pinky promise. <laughs> I'm going to say that um, all the time now. <laughs> I do like the bit where they they launch into the that sort of catchphrase, uh, and on one occasion, one of them just says, "Can can we not bother <laughs> saying it?" It's a bit, which is kind of a very Terry Pratchett note, although not quite as elegant yeah. or, or brilliant as as Terry Pratchett would have done with it. But that was a that was one nice moment. In otherwise, I would I would say a sort of. 50-page circle jerk of the most outrageous <laughs> fan wank. I mean, it starts off with fan wank. Cause, like, by page two, you've got the fourth Doctor, K-9, basically a missing scene from Warrior's Gate, Barusa and Flavia. And then yeah. throughout it, you get lots of little nods, which is fine. And then, obviously, you stay to decay. Then you get that Black Pyramid from f- the five Doctors, and we go more yeah. into the five Doctors. You get the Elixir when the Doctor's recovering from Brain of Morbius. There's a Drassig mentioned. Yep. There is one of the Council of Three is the younger brother of Chancellor Goth, which is the, the most assassin. which is the most interesting thing about these nondescript villains. Like, yeah, I, yeah. It, <laughs> I, I would have loved it more if I mean, what's his name? Algon, Algonol, Algernon, I, flowers, I, I, for, <laughs> flowers, a gonad. For, <laughs> flowers for a gonad. Um, it's it just. Like it's quite an interesting villain because this villain's stirring things up on the vampire planet and back in Chicago and sort of feeding off that hate and manipulate everybody. I don't really want. I don't need three shit time lords who aren't even ones that we care about to kind of be manipulating things on Gallifrey. I'm more interested in this guy manipulating everybody for his own ends. But the, you know, even him, he's dealt with. The Doctor just hypnotizes him with a crystal. It's like it's supposed to be the most powerful. Um, being there is, and he's basically just Darren Brown's him. He's just basically he's like a sort of Ricky Gervais as a villain, and he's yeah. like, "Oh, I'm the big I am," and then he's like, "Oh, is that me? Is that something about me?" And he's and he's dealt with. Also, I'm I want to ask how you imagine politics works on Gallifrey because in the Five Doctors, the Castellan is famously. Paul Jericho. Yeah. He's, you know, no, not the mind probe. Yeah. But in this book, which is set after <laughs> The Five Doctors, Spandrel's back yeah. as Castellan. And he's a right fucking action hero, isn't he? Isn't he, though? He, I mean, it must the, be a hundred year old George Pravda. <laughs> <laughs> I'm assuming he's regenerated because he's described as the bad cop and a bit of an action hero because yeah. that's not the Spandrel. <laughs> not my <That's>... Spandrel. No. <laughs> Hashtag not my Spandrel. <laughs> How has he got his job back? Yeah. I mean, did he he must have he must right so Paul Jericho and the Five Doctors categorically wasn't Castellan Spandrel. Yes, hundred percent. I think we can agree on yes. that, especially given that he's dead and yeah. Spandrel. So are there more than one Castellan at any given time? Or is it a political role that you can like 
you know, like some horrible yeah. figure in the UK, you could maybe aspire to come back as Prime Minister <laughs> a few months after your party have told you to fuck off. Yeah. Um, I don't quite know how it works. I mean, maybe there are two Spangels. Maybe it's a common name. Do you think it's the Gallifrey equivalent of, like, Smith? Yeah, no? exactly. Spandrel. Yeah, Jeff Spandrel. Yeah, yeah, I'm Jeff Spandrel. <laughs> I work in accounts. <laughs> Death to the doctor. That's <laughs> <laughs> lives, Jeff Spandrel, yeah. <laughs> but... It, I, it, 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 Jess Spandrel adds nothing to the plot. No, um, no. But we end up with a rehash of the five Doctors, complete with them using the harp to gain access to the transmat, to gain access to the death zone. You, you stop me if I'm boring you. Um, <laughs> and then Barusa comes back from the dead, because why wouldn't he? Rassilon yeah. pops up, yeah. and they, they saw everything. I guess yeah. the Barusa gets his forgiveness arc, um, which we were all crying you're, out for. You're calling that an arc, aren't yeah. you? Because I call that a sentence. <laughs> I wouldn't even call that a paragraph. Also, I was expecting this big climax, but it's A, it's just the five Doctors rehashed, and it's done in about two pages. Yeah, the the penultimate chapter is just this masterpiece of shutting down the plot very, very quickly. Yeah. Like, Terence Dix is sitting there, and he's typing away, and Mrs. Dix goes, <laughs> dinner will be five minutes, and he's like, okay, love. <laughs> and everyone's sorted out, and he's like, you know, he doesn't he doesn't miss his fish and chips. Yeah. Whatever, whatever. I'm, I'm more curious about what Terence Dix had for dinner when he finished this book. We, we know he loved the Chinese. That's all. We, we know oh, that. Well, who, well, I mean, oh, so... Now I'm thinking, because again he was he was quite you know quite an old guy. Yeah. But I mean he's dead now. <laughs> he would have he would have come to Chinese food when it was in its infancy. In yeah, the UK. So it would have been sweet and sour chicken and boiled white rice. Yeah, he's not going for anything fancy. You know, he's not. He's not. He'll be like, like... diving into a lemon duck. <laughs> no, no, it's just just rice and carbs and yeah. meat and everything. Yeah. That's all you need, and a lot of Chinese five spice. Yeah. Um, Do you know what? I really want that. Now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I shouldn't talk about food. I'm on a diet. Yeah. Oh, tell <laughs> I'm me not about food. <laughs> You're allowed to eat it, just only the good no, stuff. No, I just smoothies. Just, just smoothies. Just smoothies. Just oh, protein. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm 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 on like I've been I've got this personal trainer who's been training me personally. Oh, uh, personally. Yes, uh, and it is great, but he's like you can only basically eat meat and vegetables and don't put any oil on anything. Um apart from two days a week where I can do what I want. Okay. Um, is he making you do exercise? Yeah, loads well? of it. Oh, kettlebell fit, swings. Yeah, a lot of a lot of weights. I think I'm I think I'm going to be the first member of the Dwast to also become a powerlifter, judging by the last eight to nine weeks. Um, well, that's, that's <laughs> something to aim for, isn't it? I'm not. I will probably keep it up for another few weeks, and then Christmas will come, and I'll just be like, I love chocolate, and I love yeah. Baileys, and I love yeah. beer, and then yeah. and gravy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All just yeah. mix it all together. Damn it! It's what yeah, I suppose. It's, I suppose technically Christmas is like. Kind of on the horizon now. Isn't it is. It? I start seeing it in the shops. You know, yeah. my dad will have got me the Doctor Who annual, which he gets me every year, and I will Excellent. never read because I don't give a fuck <laughs> because about. Why would you? <laughs> no. Even as a kid, when I got a Doctor Who annual, and it was always the older ones, um, I would just look through it and go, "These pictures are terrible." Put it to one side, and they've been sat yeah. on a shelf in my dad's house. My dad's house 
my room there, which I don't know why he's kept it, looks like I died when I was 19 years old. <laughs> it's just my Doctor Who VHS tapes, my Doctor Who Dapol toys, some annuals, uh-huh. and then yeah. all my new adventures and stuff are there, actually. Um, wow. Just on a so shelf. I know why he's kept it like that, because he's thinking <laughs> that's my that's my pension. Yeah. <laughs> Very true, yeah. There's a full set of... I, I won't tell, tell the address online in case anybody goes there, but there's a full set of new adventures, missing adventures, and uh, past Doctor BBC books, but not the eighth Doctor books. Interesting. Why did that range not get collected then? Well, it was... I did collect it a bit, and then when I was short of cash at some point when I was a student, that was the one that I was least attached to so i sold i didn't get the full range yeah but i sold whatever i had and then the past doctor bbc books i actually i just went to his house about a year ago and was like oh there's only about 20 of these missing so i've just been picking them up ever since to (laughs) and then just sending them back to my dad's house to sit there (laughs) i bet he loves i bet he's really pleased with that arrangement it it gives him something to do and you know it was exciting when i was like could you go into my room there's a thing called blood harvest on the shelves could you post that up to me there you go oh wow i didn't realize that i was in some way Funding the Royal Mail. Yeah, that cost my dad about one pound ten. Bloody hell! So um, we digress. We do digress, <laughs> but in a, in an interesting way. <laughs> Probably we, slightly more interesting than talking about blood. <laughs> we brought it back to Doctor Who books. We that, did. That's all you're on. Yeah, we did. Yeah. So the Doctor wraps up this conspiracy, which has been going for what about twenty years. These three Time Lords have been working behind the scenes to yeah. engineer the events depicted in this book. He Wraps that up in about 30 seconds flat. Bruce has undergone a bit of a soul reversal yeah. while he's been sat in a tomb. Um, and now he's all sweetness and light again. And Romana's in it. Do, I mean, I get, you know, oh, no, nice to you know, see Romana, I suppose. When I was making notes about this, I was like, like I always put them into little sections of characters and things like that. And we haven't actually talked about Benny, but we'll, we'll, we'll come to Benny in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Romana, just, I like Romana. But she is just a Doctor Who, a Doctor stand-in. Um, yeah. She's got some in, like you know, she's quite funny as the sort of straight person to Benny's character. But I just find her completely underutilized, underwritten, and just like you know, I would like, I would prefer it if she was f- a bit funnier, a bit like she is in season seventeen or something like that. Right, but mm. here she just kind of roams in, plays a shit version of the Doctor while. Bernice goes and has an adventure. Yeah. So it's interesting that Terence Dix has written for Romana before. Yeah. And it's a character he presumably feels like he can get to grips with. Mm. He's never written for Benny before. No. Unless I'm misremembering the order they came out because he writes Shakedown, but I think that's after this. Yeah, I think so. He's never written for Benny before. Mm. And yet, how do you feel Benny comes across? I I love Benny. Yeah, and I think she comes across great here. She's having a, yeah. a wild old time yeah. on that other planet, even before Romana shows up. Um, she, you know, she's out. Look, she's like she's the, she thinks the locals drink boiled bat urine and uh, <laughs> <laughs> eats cow pats, um, and she's just very funny. Um, and she inadvertently invents the house, the House of Lords and Commons on the yeah, planet for was, them all. That was nice. Yeah, <laughs> thus dooming them to a. 
a fairly wretched couple yeah. hundred years. <laughs> but but she really kind of lights up the stuff on that that planet, and she's the most interesting thing about it. Like all the characters in the Chicago side of things are, are fun enough to kind of carry you on through, but. When you're dealing with a bunch of peasants and people going sort of, Holt, who goes there? You're a traitor. We must kill them all. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's nice to have Benny just getting a bit pissed and because that that's what I'd do if I was there. I'd just be like, fuck this. I'm going to drink some of this horrible whiskey and go to sleep. Yeah, this is this is nonsense. I mean, so I think what we're, what we're proving, um, which probably doesn't need to be proven at this point, <laughs> but Benny is such an amazing character yeah. that literally anyone can get her almost 100% right even yeah. Terence Sticks who's a different generation he's not met the character before and apart from the bit where Benny bursts into tears after they rescue the doctor from the mind probe yeah apart from that bit i think he he even somehow manages to get Benny completely bang on yeah no he he, na- he nails her well he doesn't nail her he nails the character <laughs> Dylan, deadline race. What a mental image that would be. Oh. And that, uh, that's that... Um... Sits her down in a bowl of Chinese food. <laughs> oh. It was somebody... When John Prescott had an affair years ago, the woman described it as having sex with him as like a... Uh... <laughs> like a wardrobe falling on you with the key still in the lock. And that's what I'm saying uh, the Benny and Terence Dick's night of passion was. But still better than um, than uh, if if we're going to do parallels. I imagine if you were going to bed with Jacob Brees Moore, <laughs> not dissimilar from going to bed with Orcon. <laughs> There'd be a sort of grey, pallid, lifeless cold. Yeah, it would just yeah. suck the life out of you, and not in a it, good way. Yeah, it really would. <laughs> oh. uh, but we digress again. Sorry, I've gone. I've done politics. I should save that. For, oh, I feel like this other. is. The, it's, is this going to be the most political and dirty version of this podcast yet? <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, yeah. I, I say political. We're basically talking about fucking politicians for some reason. But uh, Yes, we are. I suppose it'd be interesting to find out where you think this book kind of, before we, you know, give it a score or, or, or you know, banger or clangor, <laughs> where does it fit into the pantheon of new adventures for you? Is it nearer the top end or nearer the bottom end? Do or you, somewhere in the middle? In, in many ways... It's exactly how I like my Doctor Who, in that you know it's it's funny. It's got a few little nice throwaway references that I think are pretty cool. It's a bit gory. It's a bit creepy. It's not a scary book, but you could imagine you could see you can see a scary version of it. Uh, and you know it jumps around from different locations, and that's you know in a sort of moffity way. But it's done with somebody whose writing sensibility is probably best hit its peak in the 70s so it is i would say it's towards the mid-range because i did have a great time reading it and i was never bored apart Mm. from the last 20 odd pages but you know by which point i was on holiday so i was drunk so it's fine (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, so i would say it's middle of the range i don't think i'd recommend it to people who had never read a new adventure before unless they're sort of doctor who is Terence Dix's State of Decay Doctor Who. Yeah. But you know, I, I didn't I didn't dislike it. It was fun. 
Well, I'm really pleased that I forced you to read a book that ultimately you didn't despise. Because that would have, that would have blighted your holiday, and, and probably we'd never have podcasted again. So. Well, I would. Uh, I was still hoping that you'd pick the Eight Doctors, but uh, I, I've given you my summation yes. uh, of She-Hulk, Blood Harvest, and many other things. Yeah. Um, what What about you? Where does it stand for you in the pantheon of new adventures? So, I mean, it's not it's not absolutely the bottom of the barrel. It's yeah. not down there with books like God Engine or mm. um, Time Worm Genesis <laughs> or uh, uh, Strange England or um, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, it's obviously not. So it's 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 difficult for me because I I I read so so many books and I used to work in publishing and yeah. book selling and I like a bit of literature and 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 this is so kind of poorly written um, <laughs> that I can't I can't put it up there with the kind of great end of of this book range so yeah. it would have to be kind of you know around the middle or just below the middle it's 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 not terrible and and talking to you has made me feel a lot more <laughs> kindly disposed towards it well, than i was i'm glad i mean you know we can't say too many bad words about terence dicks this is the thing it's yeah. like being rude about the queen yeah well, suddenly once they're dead you can't, they're <laughs> inviolable you can't unless unless like um like orcon if you add hot water to terence dix he'll <laughs> rise again and write a story for shooty gatwell <laughs> do you know it did remind there is a scene in there where they talk about i found these three piles of dust in the castle and I just thought, imagine being the person going, that's a pick, sweep up these three piles and like, don't mix them up, otherwise we'll end up with a weird mix of everybody and somehow we'll bring them back to life. And it's like, oh, you missed a bit. Oh, there's something falling down. Like, you, you could end up with half a vampire. Yeah, you just swipe across <laughs> your screen and you've got Orcon's cock, you know. And then when he's regrown, he's got no wink in. He's like, where's that bit of dust? That was the most important bit of dust. And you've, what, have you left it on the floor? I think I was, oh. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think I'd be thinking about Orcon's winky today, but uh, I hope you well, call, can you call the episode that? I, I I can put it in the show notes. I can I can highlight that expression. Quite uh, no, I'm in a I'm in more of a jolly mood because I'm I'm just um, it's early in the day. I've had a coffee. It's nice. a silly book, and, yeah. and and you're a mate. So you know I'm not going to treat this one with quite the same silent reverence. Perhaps I, oh, this is very good. Yeah. yeah. Ooh. Yeah, you know, because I think I think from here on in, anyone that's still listening, to the show <laughs> nobody's is listening. mainly in it for fun. You know. <laughs> nobody's listening at this point. They're just like, we lost a bit, John Prescott. I think. <laughs> Come back. <laughs> Come back or I'll fall upon you like a cupboard. With you. <laughs> the key's oh, still in so- the loft. Uh, see, I like podcasting because uh, I'll be in the, an hour, hour and a half, two hours, whatever, and I don't look at my phone or anything, and the world can go to shit. I, when, uh, when the Queen died, actually, I was on a plane flying to Canada, as, and she was ill when I got on the plane, and then we didn't hear anything for eight hours, and uh, and she was like, oh, the Queen's dead. Oh wow! I was um, I was in a, a hotel in DC. We were having a conference, and when we got there, everyone was checking their phones. And it was like, "Oh, the Queen's ill." 
And throughout the day, the people running the conference were doing their damnedest to kind of get people to engage with the rather dry topic of academic publishing software. Yeah. And everyone was just on their phones going, oh, she, I think she's dead. <laughs> oh, Harry and Meghan have gone. Oh, she must be dying if Harry and Meghan have gone. Oh, dear. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was great. And this is the joy of sneaking your phone somewhere you're not supposed to sneak it exactly but you don't turn it on on a plane just in case it like crashes the entire system on the plane and then you crash and die that's what they tell I you mean, right? i mean so <laughs> did you watch the west wing i did but i cannot so remember there's there's a bit in the pilot episode hmm. so 1997 where a stewardess comes up to toby who's on a plane and says sir can you turn your phone off it might damn it might interfere with the plane and he says this is a you know for the sake of argument 1991 Lockheed A38340 with super flangy special wires <laughs> and you're telling me I can bring this down with something I bought for twenty dollars from Radio <laughs> and I've always used that as my kind of excuse on planes to you know tap into yeah. the Wi-Fi and fiddle about. <laughs> yeah, you know I I can get that. Well, next time I'm on a plane, my Wi-Fi will be on, and if if this plane crashes, I'll be blaming you. You'll be dead, so I'm quite happy to... Uh, oh, unless you come be... back from the dead. Yeah, oh, they'll find my powder, put it oh. all together, and uh, I'll be a brainless, blood-hungry motherfucker. Well, um, I look forward to that. And on that note, we'll speak again soon. <laughs> but thank you ever so much for joining me. And um, No worries. Do you want to... Do I don't know. Do you want to plug anything apart from, apart yeah. from your show? Um, I'm... I'm too Hot for TV is the podcast. We look at all things Doctor Who Extended Universe, from audio plays, books, comic strips, anything like that. Even sort of the dubiously licensed stuff of the 90s. We cover it all. It's me and a co-host, a different co-host every episode. And we just pick two things, sometimes three, look at them, see if we like them, see if we loathe them. And just, you know, try and try and have a lull. And I'm at Dylan Does Who on uh, Twitter, so that's me. Tribute and success to mankind. You're joining us. You got walls and a roof. I think he said Orcon's cock. Anyway, um, here's the afterwards from the team. Blood Harvest really, apart from being an exceptionally good book, has got two very notable things going for it. The first is a reminder that the rest of the universe has to play catch-up with Doctor Who. So we had uh, Vampire from Space, which became Claws of Axos. We had the start of the proper vampire stuff in State of Decay. All the Time Lord lore about the Great Vampire Wars and everything... Then 1994, we've got Blood Harvest and its partner book, Goth Opera. And it feels as though it's building up to the start of kind of something that they've brought back all this Time Lord lore because it's going to be important to us, because it's going to start setting things in motion, maybe. And then, of course, Buffy the Vampire Slayer comes along and pretty much steals the the focus and it often feels to me as though vampires and time lords, there should be something more about them. I mean, I know we had vampire science again um, as part of the 8th Doctor range, 
and we had Vampires of Venice, but they didn't really go too much into. Certainly, Vampires of Venice certainly didn't go too much into the 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 legal obligation of the Doctor to fight vampires. And I think Buffy took a lot away from Doctor Who because we could have had, in the absence of Daleks, we could have had Time Lords versus vampires because vampires are not copyrighted. And I think, really, there's a lot more focus needs to be given to this. And I'm surprised that in the uh, 18... counting on my fingers 18 years since it came out we haven't ever really gone back to this this idea the other notable thing though is something that we have gone back to many many times and it's again a nice reminder that so much of what we take for granted these days in kind of oh it's a standard doctor who gimmicky plot type thing was actually still pretty new and fresh when the virgin books came out because I do wonder how many people bought Blood Harvest not realising that it was going to be a story continued in a whole new range of books. And it's really strange to think as well that you've got Blood Harvest and Goth Opera, so 7th and 5th. You've got Shakedown and Lords of the Storm, which is 7th and 5th. You've got Cold Fusion, which is 7th and 5th. And the 90s seemed obsessed with pairing these two up somehow. I don't know why they they always defaulted to this, but it's a an interesting one. I suppose for a lot of people at the time, the fifth Doctor was the Doctor they grew up with, the seventh Doctor was the ongoing one. Were sales kind of behind this? Don't know. But yeah, Blood Harvest, screwed over by more modern pop culture and um, a damn good prequel sequel to its own future history type affair right blood harvest well what's to be said first uh it's probably my favorite terence dix books of the range having said that it does have some uh, slight kind of wobbles um i'll begin with the good stuff the excellent and diverse kind of introduction of the chicago setting uh the speakeasy bar the drenched in atmosphere we're looking at the early 1990s when the sopranos were at its zenith so we're seeing a lot of kind of similar caricatures we're seeing terence kind of indulge his own love of that period and the culture and the music combined and mix it in more of a fantasy milieu um, so that kind of gives something of a flavour of the story uh, I'm going to be honest with you, the galloping changes of emphasis here, it's kind of like, at times it's almost like reading four or five books that kind of rolled into one um, by saying that I'm kind of looking at the fact that it keeps the reader's interest um, and you know it's one of those things where sometimes there's so much going on that it's difficult to remember which one of the subplots that you're supposed to be focusing on having said that it does do something that the new adventure very seldom actually do well and that's take a lot of the background continuity we're talking about spoilers here guys the departure of Romaner, the e-space trilogy we're talking about the legacy of the five doctors state of decay the vampires the ongoing story of what kind of wrestling in the dark times we're taking all of this background stuff and we're turning it into something dramatically potent that points a way forward for the range So in that respect, Blood Harvest is actually one of the most important books of the new adventures because it succeeds in taking all this gumph and ephemera that's kind of like, you know, hanging around the neck of Doctor Who like an albatross. And I say that as somebody who's not a big, massive fan of continuity. You know, I like my Doctor Who to be... um 
you know, something akin to the beginning of Ark in Space or even Frank Crotchell Boyce's Smile, you know, the Doctor and his companion land in a, an unfamiliar and alien terrain and we just explore it with them, you know, so it's that voyage of kind of discovery. Uh, Robert Holmes had it down pat. Having said that, I did enjoy Blood Harvest. I felt that it was a strong book. It's one of the better ones of the, uh, of the range. Uh, there's a marvellous couple of scenes between the Doctor conf confronting the local gangsters, uh, which almost sounds like the Seventh Doctor spoiling for a fight. I won't uh, spoil that for you. I'll let you dig out it. But yeah, Blood Harvest, a lot to enjoy. As somebody who's not a huge fan of continuity, um, it was one that at times I felt could occasionally teeter across into the the narrative of kind of looking backwards rather than forwards. Uh, but you know what? Hey, it's, it's a book I enjoyed. It's one I would definitely recommend. There is this extraordinary strain in fandom, almost universal, incredibly insufferable, and a little bit conceited, that seems to feel that it is only possible to praise Terence Dix if you also caveat that. We can only talk about his wonderful work for the Target novels if we then say knowingly to each other, oh, but of course, when he was churning them out once a month, they weren't as good as they could have been. They weren't as good as the later contributions. Well, go and read The Invisible Enemy. Go and read Pyramids of Mars. Go and read The Horns of Naimon and look at just how much Terence Dix added to those novelizations, even when he was churning them out in an incredibly fast and effective manner. When it comes to the new adventures, Terence wrote three marvellous books, but even then the praise has to be caveated. It has to be compared to his so-called weaker out. When it comes to Blood Harvest, even that can't just be praised as a wonderful adventure. It often gets compared less favourably to something like Exodus. Well, let me say, Terence Dix is a bloody marvellous writer, and the need to caveat him the need to be a little bit condescending about his work perhaps comes from some sense of inner fan shame that I'm not able to pass or understand, but to hell with it. This is a bloody good adventure. Even when fans do praise it, they still have to point out that the continuity isn't quite perfectly aligned with State of Decay, and of course that's his own story, it's his own script, he should have known better. <laughs> well, nonsense. He is allowed to expand his own world, and it's all the better and more exciting for it. This is a book which just sails through many locations. One thing that's amazing about Terence Dix is just how well he writes for every Doctor, and that includes the Seventh Doctor, which he has no business understanding as well as he does. And in Blood Harvest, he absolutely nails the character. I think it's also worth noting that at the point when the missing adventures were being launched, whilst Terence could have wallowed in the past, he could have gone and written for the Pertwee era or the Tom Baker era, he chose to be forward-looking and to continue to write for Sylvester McCoy's Doctor. And he deserves praise for that, because that's what a truly inventive and invested writer does. As we go from one location to the other, as we meet characters one after the other, each of those is spectacular, each of those is entertaining, and above all, that's what Terence Dix does. He writes entertaining stories, and Blood Harvest is one of the most entertaining of the range. I love every aspect of it. 
I enjoyed it when I was a teenager. I enjoyed reading it again recently. So let's put aside the caveats. Let's put aside the intellectual snobbery. Let's put aside this idea that we have to wink knowingly at each other that oh, it wasn't quite as good as it could have been. And, oh, look, we're very aware that they're sort of children's books. We're a little bit embarrassed. Nonsense. Forget it. Terence Dix is fantastic. Blood Harvest is excellent. And let's just praise him for the wonderful adventure writing storyteller that he was. And next month on the show, the Silurians are back. See you then. This episode of We're All Stories in the End was made with the help of all my wonderful friends. time it's blood harvest a doctor who new adventure set in the time of prohibition and what's more it's written by mr target himself terence dix this should be fun and it's a really good start and i'm a sucker for a raymond Charles homage and this has all the right ingredients in spades a seedy office a down at helix cop pi a world weary first person narration the doctor running a secret speakeasy and brewing alcohol in the tardis swimming pool Get me a bottle of hooch from the bottom drawer and let's dive in. And the basic conceit is it's Doc meets Alphonse Gabriel Capone, old Scarface himself, complete with a gang of colourful hoodlums and a cameo from Elliot Ness, not to mention a nice quote from the Untouchables. And there's a mysterious character manipulating things in the background. And it's all great fun and there's a real sense of effort being made to get the period details right, even if it's a bit cliched in places. But... Hey, you know, respecting a decent cliché can be a good thing. Classic Doctor Who, you might even say. And Decker's a great character, and any chapter where he narrates the storage is hugely enjoyable. And it's all the standard, usual Doctor Who fun. That is, until Ace kills a goon by blowing the top of his head off. Because there's no shortage of stone-cold violence in this new adventure. Not to mention some heavy gunplay, multiple casualties, and blood on the streets. This is definitely not the old cuddly Uncle Terence. And personally, I'd been very happy if we'd stayed in Chicago and the threat had just been thin white dude Argonel ramping up the distrust and bloodshed amongst the gangs to feed off of it. The Doctor could defeat the villain, preferably in a nighttime rooftop shoot showdown in the rain, set time back on its proper path and Al Capone heading for a meeting with the IRS, but Argonel escapes to cause trouble another day. A nice historical piece with a smattering of the supernatural or SF all wrapped up in a familiar set of tropes. Lovely. But we also get a second plot strand with Benny dumped in e-space on the planet of the vampires, with a returning Romana and a rehashed version of State of Decay. And it's all very medieval and there's some nice interplay between the archaeologist and the Time Lady, but apart from building a hammer horror of atmosphere, I'm not quite sure how it relates to things back in the Windy City. 
And then there's a third thing happening with three shadowy figures with the time scoop looking to make a sequel to The Five Doctors. Where is all this going? I'll tell you. It's the last 30 pages of the novel is where. Because suddenly we've abandoned Chicago and our colourful cast of characters and we're in e-space and managed to find Romana and Benny with no trouble at all. And, oh look, the resurrected vampires are defeated in a flash with a few bullets from Decker's trusty gun and some mild tech tinkering from the Doctor. And whoosh, we're off to Gallifrey and three scheming Time Lords are revealed as wanting to take over the universe or something, but they're defeated in a flash and then... Oh, here comes Rassilon to take out Argonol in a single paragraph, no less. And Barusa's back, and he's redeemed, and oops, no, no, he's gone again, and, and Decker's seriously wounded, but no, no, he's all better now, and... and Did Terence get caught up in the Chicago way and then realise he was running out of space and had to wrap up everything up as quickly as possible and chuck in a plug for Goth Opera at the very end for good measure? There are enough revelations, callbacks, plot twists and resolutions in those last few pages for a whole extra book. It was all going so well. What was he thinking? I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the majority of this book. But wow, that wrap-up was really a stinker. Still, you'd like to think that at least Decker got a happy ending.